You are listening to The Close Up, the Film Society of Lincoln Center's podcast series. This is Brian Brooks. And this is Eugene Hernandez. Our first edition of The Close Up features filmmaker Paul Thomas Anderson here at the 52nd New York Film Festival. So the world premiere of Inherent Vice was definitely one of the most anticipated movies of the festival. It was the centerpiece screening this year, and the day after the premiere, Paul Thomas Anderson joined New York Film Festival director Kent Jones here at Lincoln Center for our HBO On Cinema conversation. It was an extended talk that featured film clips from influential movies chosen by P.T. Anderson. I chatted with Kent beforehand, and he told me that the clips that they played were from movies and videos that influenced P.T. Anderson in how he approached making Inherent Vice. It was quite an afternoon, more than 1,100 people packed into Alice Tully Hall for the talk. And it's worth mentioning that this special event was part of our ongoing talks program here at the Film Society that's sponsored by HBO. While Inherent Vice is a backdrop for the wide-ranging discussion between P.T. Anderson and Kent Jones, the talk also touched on Anderson's advocacy for shooting on film, his love of Cary Grant, Uh, he talked about hippies, the role of plot in cinema, as well as the significance of seeing his first music video as a kid. Right before P.T. Anderson and Kent walked out on stage at Alice Tully Hall, we screened a clip from Leslie Nielsen's early 80s TV crime comedy, Police Squad. You can definitely see the influence of that TV show on his latest movie. Inherent Vice stars Joaquin Phoenix as Detective Doc Sportello, who investigates the disappearance of his former girlfriend against the backdrop of a drug-fueled L.A. in the 1970s. So let's listen to the conversation between Kent Jones and Paul Thomas Anderson. God bless Leslie Nielsen. Um, before any, anything else, I want to uh, acknowledge our sponsors and thank them. The Royal Bank of Canada, Jaeger Lacoutre, American Airlines, The New York Times, Stella Artois, The Hollywood Reporter, Variety, Trump International Hotel and Tower, and Row New York City, and HBO. HBO makes these dialogues possible, and they're actually our year-round sponsor for dialogues. So thank them for making today possible. He had a mind. <laughs> I never um, did care for her. <laughs> <laughs> that was when we started talking about this. This was the very first thing that you mentioned. So, <laughs> yeah, um, I think my dad used to work at ABC. He was in a, a booth announcer at ABC. So, um, I first became aware of Police Squad when I was when I was young because he 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 told me about it. He brought it home. Um, said you've got to see this and it was funny immediately it was the first time i'd see it i think it was before i saw airplane yeah. i could be wrong it could be right out it could be right after but um it made such an impression on me i mean it's you know it's hilarious it's brilliant it doesn't get any better and i think recently i just been flashing back on it i think it was like kind of became um stupidly i'm a smoker so when you go outside to smoke and you kind of need something to do with your phone, I was going to YouTube and watching Police Squad episodes, and <laughs> I was like, I kind of remember feeling so good about this stuff, and just so brilliant, and there's a, the sight gags, the visual stuff, not just the dialogue stuff, but when they'll do bits in the background and stuff that'll go on forever, I mean, just even the opening title sequence, all that stuff, just such an impression on me, and I, I just, I love it, I mean, I, I, on through all their stuff, you know, top, top secret, and 
yeah. the airplane movies and stuff. So yeah, and every dial, every opening sequence is different, and they always announce the wrong title. Wrong title. A, a new dead guest star each week. Yeah, that's right. Um, George Stanford Brown gets a safe <laughs> dropped on him, and uh -huh, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, they're brilliant guys, and this was like the. There's just this, it was so so fresh. It was so fucking nuts, and yeah. it, it made you feel like. Um, Oh, you can do you can do anything. Yeah. You can do anything you want. That's okay. That was a, that's a very liberating feeling. I remember when I was you know nine or ten when I saw this stuff. Yeah. Um, the Zucker brothers and Jim Abrams, right? Yeah. And, and um, Joe Dante directed a couple episodes. And there did were, he? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. He did the boxing episode. Okay. <laughs> um, I did not know that. Yeah. Wow. Okay. But it, mostly they directed them. I or, think so. Have, yeah. Okay. And there were only eight of them, right? It wasn't. It wasn't, wasn't very many. Yep. Um, but what's funny is that I, how I don't know how that stuff works though. It's an unsuccessful TV series, but becomes a successful a film, film franchise. Fr yep. I, right. I wonder. I don't know how that stuff works, but um, maybe it was ahead of its time for television or whatever it was. How how television works, you know, you get the wrong time slot, you're on the wrong night, whatever it is. Right. But you've got great material. You just can't survive. So. Yeah. Um, but the Naked Gun movies are great. I mean, I don't really know them as they go on. There was one with O.J. Simpson that was actually quite good. 33 and a third. Naked yeah, that's Gun, right. 33 and a third. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. He was a pretty good actor. <laughs> 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 um, pretty good driver, too. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh. So, you, I mean, I'm... Uh, a little older than you, but we're both of the generation where watching TV when we were kids was formative, huh? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, mostly cartoons and things like that when I was yeah. watching TV. You know, I watched cartoons, but again, to bring up my dad, my dad working at ABC would bring right. home things um, like Top Secret. Soap was a TV series. Yes. Do you remember yeah. that? Yeah. That was great. And I think it was a little bit over my head, but I was watching it through his eyes. I was watching him laugh at it, so right. it was like training wheels helping me to laugh at, at what yeah. was funny. And I, I, there was a lag time for me, for sure, mm -hmm. catching up to what he was laughing at. But it was, he was informing what I thought was funny, for sure, you know, yeah. helping me along. Yeah. Um, just putting it together with um, the movie that you just made. It's kind of cool because, on the one hand, you know, you're thinking you're also working with one of the world's greatest comics, Martin Short. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the greatest comic actors alive, um, mm -hmm. and um, you've got your own special relationship with comedy mm -hmm. and TV comedy, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and that's you know, that's there in this clip in full bloom, huh? Yeah. yeah. Well, certainly, you know. Um, Probably like being just like anything that it's for me that you can get like as a reminder to flash you back to the feelings that you had when you yes. were a kid yep. is helpful, particularly like when you're st when starting up a new movie, you know, um, just get, you know, amidst all the nerves and energy and confusion of what you're doing, just like mm -hmm. breathing and remembering why, why am I, what am I after here? Why am I here in the first place? What am I doing? And getting back to that, those original joys and feelings, um, they're good. They're good to get back to. And I, when I when I was started remembering after reading Pinchon's book and getting starting to get more serious about this, just one of those things like I gotta go watch Police Squad. Get yeah. on YouTube and start watching Police Squad. And whether or not you're gonna really try to do, 
I'm not going to try to do that. There's nobody that can do that. But, but remembering that energy from being a kid, remember that anything's possible, remembering that you can fill the frame with crazy shit and you know, hope to, to get away with multiple things happening at the same time. Like, that's a kind of encourager. It was like taking a pill. Like, okay, I, can, I feel like I can, now I'm going to use that to try to attack this story that I'm doing the way that he would write a book. And mm-hmm. It was just a good energizing pill for me in, 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 in many ways, like I just said. And, they, you know, in the things weird things come from all places to help you. It doesn't yeah. matter where you come from. Like, pull it out of the sky to remember something that you liked as, as a kid. You'll take it. It's like great. Yeah. Yeah. And Pinchon's book is also filled with things that bring you back there. You know, I mean, different people take different. You know, bring bring you back to a sense memory of you know young. And then the TV thing is also present there. They're watching Dark Shadows. Dark Shadows. Yeah. I mean, the, there's no there's a long list of sort of cultural references, things like that. Yeah, what's yeah. playing on the radio? What station it's playing on? Yeah. And you know, he can flash you back to hearing jingles in the yeah. car when you're a kid driving around with your mom driving in the yeah. station wagon, or you know, describing a doc television set as he got got it from a parking lot at Zodi's. You know, just instant flashback. For me, come from California, like it's a fucking Zodi's man. You go buy those TVs at Zodi's. So those things. They bring you back in a good way. Yeah, and and the big bounce, and the big which, bounce. Which he says yeah. <laughs> the worst score ever inflicted on a movie by the Mike Curb Congregation. That's right, yeah. Mike Curb Congregation. Yep. Um, who's also very political, I believe. Right. That's right. Yeah. And a, a, pretty yeah. far on, on the, the conservative side of on the conservative Reagan esque side of things. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That's Mike right. Curb, <laughs> musician and well, oh, fuck it. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um. The next clip is is a is a real change of pace. I th- maybe we'll just let the clip run and let it's that. Oh, so, great! Yeah, great. <laughs> so this is Eugene Hernandez again, and at various points during the conversation, Kent Jones and Paul Thomas Anderson would stand up from their chairs and walk to the side of the stage to play another clip. The audience had no idea what they were about to see. The first clip during the main part of the conversation was a scene from Neil Young's 1974 music documentary, Journey Through the Past, featuring David Crosby, Graham Nash, and Stephen Stills. That's our longest, weirdest, slowest clip yeah, of the that's day. that's our longest, so weirdest, They're not all going to be that fucking weird. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't thought that one through. It was kind of, you know, I did, but um, yeah, it's great, isn't it? It's good. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> Um, Everybody know what it's from? Yeah, I know. You know what it's from. I hear that voice. That's my, that's my best friend, Pete. Okay, no cheating. Then anybody yeah. else? It's Journey Through the Past, which is a movie Neil Young directed. I wouldn't quite know how to describe it. It's not a concert film. It's yeah. just sort of 1970, 1971, 72, something. I think. Okay, right? so around harvest time. Yeah. Um, it's him. It's stuff like that. It's... Uh, <laughs> And, and concert footage. Is there some, um, some mixed in, him playing in a park, him going to a radio station? Anyway, yeah. I love it just because uh, for the film that, that, that we just made, there's obviously some references just to the way it looks and the way it feels and um, through the whole movie. But this thing in particular, I mean, it just looks like my idea of heaven on a Saturday afternoon, like cruising around with your girl and, and parking on with a babbling brook nearby and taking a joint out and eating strawberries and drinking apple juice and I don't know what I don't know how it could get any better on a Saturday afternoon than that 
but right. I but the one thing I wanted to point out, sorry, to, but the one thing I like about it, and this is probably reading too much into it, but um, the way he looks over at the camera, um, there's a passage in Inherent Vice in the book that didn't make the movie, but it was this discussion between Bigfoot, who's this LAPD straight-laced cop, and Doc, who are our hippie hero, and they're talking about what happened with Manson and uh, how it just fucked everything up for all these hippies, that it used to be that the straight world would look at them and think, oh, look how cute they are. They're kind of like monkeys in a zoo. The husband is carrying the baby, and the mom is paying for the groceries, and they're, like, treated them like, like you know, like kind of cute caged animals. And Manson came along, and then suddenly it was, stay away, they might mass murder all of us, you know? So there was this, this shift. And I, I maybe reading that passage into him, looking here, the way he would look over like, like they were zoo creatures, almost like it was a nature film, you know? Like looking, looking at the camera, like, you know, when you see monkeys get caught, caught on tape and they look over and they... I, I read that into it, but there was something about it that was like, look at these little hippies, what are they doing? Parking their old car and eating their strawberries. <laughs> With their furry jackets on, and you know, um, and their long hair, and, and their, their bad long posture. hair, and yeah. bad posture, and, yeah. and weird speaking voices, and yeah, yeah, and you know, so yeah, and that it's his was movie, and it's his movie, <laughs> exactly, and and it's a very mysterious moment when he's looking at the camera because he's kind of giving it the. Well, he's got yeah. a great glaze on him. Gaze on him. Yeah. Um, he's got a good glaze, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, both. Of- at the same time. Yeah. You know. <laughs> but he's just a hero of mine anyway, so yeah. he can do no wrong. And certainly um, forever I've, I've been uh, following him and admiring him. And yeah. Just, just put that stuff on. Same for a lot of us. And yeah. Also, I mean, the interesting thing that since you mentioned Manson is that he had his own relationship with Charles Manson, right? I mean, he actually heard his demo and thought this guy's a, you know, could be a great, great songwriter. I think that's, I think he mentions that in his book, Waging Heavy Peace, Waging right? Waging Heavy it, Peace, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Which is a good book. If anybody hasn't read it, you should read it because there's a lot of interesting stuff in there. Um, yeah. Particularly about Neil Young buying Lionel Trains. <laughs> you know, here's the ultimate hippie and he, his real passion was Lionel Trains, yeah. which I think were made out of Pennsylvania. I yeah. could get that wrong. I'm sorry. I think that that's true. Um, the company was going out of business. just too hard to make these beautiful trains and make it economically feasible for this company. And Neil Young came along, I think, um, I hope I get this story right, and saved the company, saved yeah. the company so they continued to make these beautiful trains in America, in, in, Philadelphia, in, outside, in Pennsylvania someplace. Yeah. Um, and that went on for a number of years until ultimately it became, again, economically unfeasible and impossible to keep Lionel Trains going unless they moved to China to make the, right. the trains in China. Mm-hmm. So here was Neil Young, this old ultimate hippie, faced with this very difficult decision, you know, this inherent vice of the situation, <laughs> which is Lionel Train is the most important thing. And from my youth, I've got to keep it alive. I could move it to China. But the fact that I move it to China takes away jobs from here. It also adds an enormous amount of pollution, getting these trains back over the ocean. Mm-hmm. What do I do? You'll have to read the book to find out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, he, he, yeah. he moved it to China. Mm-hmm. He moved it to China to keep, it al- to keep this, the, the name alive and to keep the trains alive. And I think yeah. probably with the goal of ideally sort of one day trying to find a way to make them here again. But, you know, a tough situation for a hippie to be in. <laughs> when, 
When you were a kid, do you have a memory of like you know hippies and how they were talked about? Um, you know, by you know, no, seeing them really. around. Yeah. No. Do you? Yes, I do. I'm. I think I'm a decade older than you. Yeah. And very much so. And I remember dressing up like, <laughs> right. wearing bell. Yeah. No. I mean, you know, that was, that was a thing. I mean, I was ten years old, but it was a very. There was a, what you're saying. You know, look at the animals in the zoo. That was very. Right. That was very much of the time. I think by the time, like, when I'm talking about hippies, it was very much you ridiculous, were, like, big afros with beaded things, right. and, you know, it was right. this, like, insanely, but it was never, it was never a bad word around our house. Yeah. I mean, my parents were a bit liberal and stuff, but they yes. were old, they were too old to be hippies, you know. Yeah. yeah. I mean, my dad did have, like, a very ill-advised, like, jean jacket with, like, <laughs> rainbows and shit on it and rabbits. <laughs> That it was, you know, for a guy that was in World War II, like you don't, you shouldn't be wearing a jean jacket with rainbows on it, <laughs> like, <laughs> with matching jeans as well, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the other thing about the clip is the the backlight from the sun, which is something beautiful. that features prominently in some of the most beautiful shots in Inherent Vice. Yeah. Too. yeah. Well, too, you know, it's one thing you get some nice backlight in there, but obviously they're working. I don't know if they shot on 16 millimeter or 35 millimeter. I think it's 35. 35. And this is kind of nerd talk, but... Yeah. Uh, let the nerd talk begin. Let the nerd talk. But, you know, um, the nerd part of me is like, well, God, they obviously had a zoom on there, but what zoom was it? Because the way that the highlights kind of bounce around and move around, the way that that backlight shines yes is always something you're, you're you're trying to find out how to do that with yeah. certain lenses because certain lenses will, will act a different way to yeah. the way light is and that's just that's inherently what's what's great about different lenses they each do different things yeah. so i was trying to find stuff to make it make them shine or bloom or move around the way that that does it's just beautiful um yeah. beautiful to look at um yeah yeah, yeah. um Clip three? Yeah, we should, should we tell them what it is or just no, show it? No, it's not. And this is Brian. Our next clip was Repo Man. Paul Thomas Anderson was in his early teens when the crime comedy sci-fi came out. New York Film Festival director Kent Jones credits the movie by Alex Cox as a catalyst for the indie film movement. Um... When you mentioned this movie, you said you really wanted to get a print, which would have been cool. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, we just couldn't mix and match for That's technical fine. reasons. But yeah. I, I did get a print about three or four years ago, and I watched it. And this is Repo Man, if anybody doesn't know this movie. This yeah. is Repo Man by, Alex, uh, Cox. by Alex Cox, who, you know, I mean, I know if, if you know him, you know him, but if you don't, Find out about him, okay? <laughs> Go find everything he's done, even up until recently. He is amazing, and he always has been, and, and as far as I'm concerned, underappreciated. But this movie was something I saw again when I was you know, a kid. I was 13 or 14 years old, mm -hmm. and I recognized this world. I mean, I, those, that living room was something I saw all the time yeah. around me. That is, like, very familiar. I saw burned-out hippie parents and kids new guys like this with flat tops and the shirt tied around their waist and who are in the, you know, in the suburbs of the San Fernando Valley and kind of punk rock and kind of not and mm -hmm. kind of, you know, aimless and sort of product of hippie parents who weren't paying attention. So 
that's one element of this movie that I guess ties into Inherent Vice. But tabling that directing in this scene, there is such abandon in this movie, but, but it's focused, it's funny, it's outlandish. Um, I mean, it's just kind of brilliant. And um, I don't know, has anybody seen it? Is it, is it well-loved? Is, is I mean, I'm not, okay, great. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, this movie was a phenomenon when it came out. Talk about it. It was a, well, you could use the word sleeper, I suppose, right. which doesn't really exist anymore. Right. Um, it's not possible with modern marketing, but it was a real, and it was also one, it was one of the films that really sparked the indie movement. Yeah, good. Okay. Yeah. That's good that it's recognized that way, because that's how it felt to me. Um, you know, because it was very, it was the kind of days early, so like, something would be in the theater, and it would be, it would sort of disappear kind of quickly, because yeah. it was kind of culty. But the good news was, within six months or a couple months, you could get it on videotape and you yeah. could watch it over and over and over again, which my brother and I did with this one a lot. But it was talky. It's talky yeah. in a way that never feels like a stage play because yeah. it's always moving. And But there's dialogue throughout. I mean, I, Quentin, I'm sure, has, has was influenced and loved this movie. And we've never talked about it, but yeah. there's there's Quentin fingerprints all over the, the way that they, these characters talk to each other. Just endless dialogue scenes. They're great. And the scenes in the car. The with scenes Harry Dean in the Stanton. car with Harry Dean Stanton, with Cy Richardson. And, yes. Um, yeah. And Alex Cox, too, just the way he used music was crazy. I mean, he used Joe Strummer a lot. He yeah. had Iggy Pop do, I think, the theme song for this. Yeah. And, um, oh, I don't know. Let's just pick this clip because there are ties to Inherent Vice. There's ties to a, a world that I grew up very close to, very nearby to all these kinds of characters. And um, and I just, I don't know, can't can't give, can't talk about Alex Cox enough as far as I'm concerned. He's just, he's, he's a hero. He has a column in Film Comment. Oh, he does? Yep. That's fucking news to me. I'm not paying attention. That's God. <laughs> Shooting. I, mean, I know he teaches school. Uh, he teaches um, up in uh, uh, Colorado, I think. Uh, I think so. Yeah. yeah. He made a great movie called uh, Three Businessmen yeah. a few years back. Well, it's more than a few years now. But th again, talk about characters just walking through the streets and talking. It's it's great. It's and he's in it too. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, yeah. Death in the Compass. That one I don't know. The Borges story. Okay. Uh, and then going back, uh, obviously, Sid and Sid Nancy, Nancy, but Walker. Straight to Walker. Yeah. Walker, which I think Criterion put, 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 put out, um, but Walker is great so. and a great soundtrack. And By Just Trummer. Go, yeah. go see Walker. You'll, start to, you'll see the very first Apple computer jokes. You won't believe it. Um, <laughs> I, I, he was the first one in 1984 realizing, like, Apple's going to take over the fucking world. You'll see. And he was ahead of his time. And he was yeah. right. Is it just Joe Strummer who did the soundtrack? It's other people, right? It's a whole... I, I, on, on, Walker, on Walker, yeah. I thought it was just Joe Strummer, but perhaps yeah. other people were involved. I, could, I should look more closely. Yeah. Also, again, you're talking about a film that's incredibly beautiful. Okay, great, I mean, great to talk about Robbie Mueller, um, who is a great cinematographer um, who shot stuff for Alex Cox, also shot a lot of Jim Jarmusch's stuff, too. And Vim Vendors. And, yeah. and Vim Vendors. And I always, um, we didn't have anything, I mean, those are, there's a night interior, but if you look at this movie again, I'm always trying to get uh, night exteriors to look like Robbie Mueller did it, and I can never do it. I don't know how he did it. It doesn't look like there's any lights on. It looks like how it really looks, and to back then, there's got to be a million lights on. You know, he he just he. I don't know how he did it. It was it's like a magic trick. As long as we keep doing it, I'll try to keep trying to get 
uh, night exteriors to look like Robbie Mueller, and he had a magic with it and I, that I can't quite figure out. Um, it's something to look for in his photography that, that he was a master at. There are people that are good at certain things, he's the master at night exteriors, which can be very difficult. It can feel like it's lit, it can feel too stylized, or it can feel too dark, whatever. Robbie Mueller knew, knew how to do it in, in a way like a, like, a, like a chef with a secret sauce. I, I, I can't quite figure it out. Yeah, and, and that makes any sense. That's my obsession about that. Yeah, and as long as we're talking about that, I mean, that's actually, um, we're talking about film, shooting on film. And right. so what a lot of people are doing now is even when they are shooting on film, when they go to the night scenes, they wind up resorting to um, the Alexa or... That's right. Yeah, yeah I think the, the, benefit, the obvious benefit is that you can shoot without any lights or you can shoot yeah. with just a few practicals on. And yeah. I haven't done that yet, and I suppose that's all well and good for people, and that's good. And I mean, I, I but that's hope different. that it's different. It's different. It's different, different look. It looks different. Um, Our eye is very attuned to it now because it's been going on for so long, but it's... I, I believe so too. And I, I think at its, at, at its worst, I would hate to think that there won't be more... Uh, artists like Robbie Mueller out there knowing the art of, of uh, movie lighting, you know? I mean, like, to, to be good at movie lighting is like a lifelong job, to be, to be skillful at it and be great at it. And you know, the great ones who are out there, from Roger Deakins to Chivo and Robbie Mueller's and on and on, the list is long, to James Wong Howe, any of these guys through, through time, I mean, like masters of, 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 of what they do. Um, so skillful, and, and that skill was required from them because they were shooting on film. I, I don't want to say anything bad here, but the skill level has been diminished if you shoot at night and you don't need to put any lights up because you don't need to put any lights up. Um, and I would hate to think that that is going to be lost, that that, that job of, of someone who can light a movie set um, would, would go away. But I, I don't think so. I, you see a lot of good young cinematographers coming up and some exciting stuff going on so I don't I'm not pessimistic about it but yeah. just yeah, but it, is, it is something that a lot of people do in post now that's right right that's right yeah. and that's then that's fucking cheating yep. <laughs> <laughs> pardon my French I should have said come on to um, the next clip is um, you know this one speaks for itself. You'll know what this is. Everybody's going to know. Instantly. There's nothing weird about this one. No. This is Eugene. The emotions and visuals featured in Hitchcock's classic thriller, North by Northwest, were significant influencers for Inherent Vice. So a clip from that film started off the next part of the conversation. What the... They go onto the tarmac, everybody knows this movie, they go onto the tarmac and there's, you know, like a good 30 seconds of exposition, yeah. which that mercifully is drowned out by the sound of an airplane. Eight minutes later. Uh, <laughs> oh, eight minutes later, okay. Right. Um, which is a great way to deal with exposition that nobody cares about. Oh, God, he was so brilliant. He's just like, no one cares about this. Just put in, a, put in the airplane noise yeah. over it. Ah, <laughs> oh, what a movie. Yep. And... It's interesting because when people are asking you about inherent vice, the big sleep comes up a lot, right? right? But then this movie, with the way that the plot is just so crazy, and as you said, you know, you just don't remember the plot at all. You know, you kind of do, but it doesn't really matter. 
um, and um, you know, that's that's also applicable, I guess. For sure, for sure. I mean, I'm I'm not I'm not I'm not. Um, I never remember plots of movies. Um, I remember how they make me feel, you know, and I I I and I'm. Um, I remember emotions and I remember visual things that I've seen and I never connected that my brain just has never connected the dots really about how things go together um, you know it's like a friend of mine um, told me a story he was in a band and there's a guy that does the lighting and um, he, he said to him one time he's like you know when people come out of a concert they don't come out whistling the lights M meaning you know, they, they come out whistling a tune. It's the same thing. It's like people don't come out whistling about the plot. They come out whistling about how, what, what, what happened. What, how did that, and then an actor. How do they make me feel? You know, um, and I feel that way about this, this movie in particular. It was um, a huge help getting ready for Inherent Vice just because I knew there was so much ground to cover and it was a bit episodic and there was sort of jumping from stone to stone to stone and, and sometimes these connector pieces were made in the book, sometimes they weren't and there were various blind alleys and dead end streets and all that kind of stuff and kind of similar to this. I mean, it's a far different hero in the middle of it but it was a helpful reminder to go back to this film and and, and feel that energy again and, and feel kind of a looseness. There is a looseness how, how it just, it takes the turns it needs to take to keep, keep it on its feet and keep it moving. And, um, and that's one element of what's great about this movie. But b besides that, I mean, the fucking music and the way that it looks and it Cary Grant and everyone at their best. I mean, I could watch this movie over and over and over again and it never gets old. Um, you know, um, I'm just going to gush about it. I can't. That's that's all I'm going to do. No, you don't need to hear more of that. But, but there's also the the look that we were just talking about. The film is shot on VistaVision, as most of Hitchcock's films from this period were. Right. And um, VistaVision is. It's it's flipped on its side, but it's essentially I'm going to get this wrong. I think it's really eight It's like 65 millimeter in a way, but it's flipped on its side, so it's a larger format, and it was a popular. You get format. more image space. You get more image space. Yeah. Um, very similar to 65 millimeter, which is something that we did on the masters. Yes. So I think you know, trying to make it look like it was of that era, that kind of 50s era. Um, yeah, um, but Cary Grant, that's really what it comes down to, too. I mean, yep. it, it always Cary Grant. comes down. To it Cary always Grant. comes down to <laughs> Cary Grant. We can go on and on about bullshit technical stuff and all this kind yep. of stuff. It's just nerd stuff. I mean, Cary Grant. Yep. You could, you know, you shoot this movie with your phone. If Cary Grant was in it. I think it would probably still be pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> really? So all that stuff about what you shoot on everything yeah, yeah, else, yeah, yeah. put Cary Grant in the movie yeah, and that's right. I swear, you know, yeah. you'll be all right. Yeah, that's right. I just made a movie on my iPhone with Cary Grant. Um, uh, des designed his own suits. He did? Yeah. Well, yeah. why wouldn't he? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Trust that to somebody else. Yeah. Um, is it is it is it uh, Cary Grant or is it no Vertigo's Jimmy Stewart? Vertigo's right? Jimmy Stewart. That story it was on TCM. They hired the guy from the restaurant up in uh, San Francisco. 
They, they hired, the, there's a, a famous restaurant up in San Francisco. Have anybody heard this story? They hired this, uh, so they recreated it down on stage in Hollywood because they couldn't shoot up in San Francisco. And they brought the maitre d' down, the actual maitre d' down. Hitchcock brought him down. Oh, Ernie's, yes. Ernie's, yeah. yes. Yeah. And he brought him down to the Universal stage where they built the, um, the recreation of the set. And Hitchcock said to him, just be the maitre d'. It's Ernie's exact replica of Ernie's. I want you to be the maitre d' at Ernie's. So yeah. Jimmy Stewart's going to walk in, and you know, Hitchcock says, you greet him and bring him to his table. Mm-hmm. And he said, okay, great. And he said, action. And Jimmy Stewart walks in, and this maitre d' says, good evening, Mr. Stewart. <laughs> and walks in. <laughs> <laughs> And then they apparently did it on the second and third take until he finds out. Okay. It's a good thing he wasn't making rope. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, but back to that back to that plot issue, that is a thing that's a constant that's in that's Hitchcock because he's he's taking things that don't make sense and putting them together, but then they do make sense because he's got so much invested in every scene and the emotional logic. Of, of the um, of what's happening to the hero and the heroine that your you know plausibility becomes beside the point right? plausibility well emotional logic I think is a good way to put it if, if emotional logic is betrayed then you're, you've, you've got a problem yep. you know but it's not that none of it's plausible it's all it is seems to me vaguely plausible yeah. it's not it's not ridiculously implausible right. you know that that's that's, right. a, that's, yeah. that's a fine line yeah, that's absolutely. between yeah. no fucking way <laughs> and maybe i could see that happening yeah, yeah. i could see the, the uh, them dropping being... home off in the middle of a field yeah. and uh, you know <laughs> I mean, you, you suspend some disbelief, of course, but I think you're right. Not at the time that you're watching it, that's for sure. Uh, no. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, you do when you you're do watching when you're it. Watching you, don't it. About, you don't think about the... But, the emo- but that emotion thing, that's, you said it exactly right. You know, if you, if, I think if you, if you start messing with the plausibility of somebody's emotions, yeah. you get that it, yeah. feels against the rules a little bit. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta play by the rules. So like, be honest with people's emo- how a character's emotions, and if you take care of that, then then you can fudge the other stuff. Yeah, it's not just against the rules. It's time for another job. Right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that, yeah, that's another way to put yeah, it. Yeah, that's a yeah. Hand in your DGA card. <laughs> we'll, we'll take your DGA card now, sir. Yep. You, vi- <laughs> you, you violated you, the you, emotional you, you accuracy exhibited rule. an insufficient <laughs> understanding <laughs> yeah. of emotional logic. Yeah. We have it on good authority that you have done three unmotivated crane shots in your last <laughs> five movies. <laughs> you used handheld out of focus 500 different times over the past. Fuck. <laughs> DGA police. Yeah, you're on probation. Okay. Uh, next clip. Sure. Which is. Want me to tell you what it is? No, no. Hell no. And this is Brian. The next clip was from Jackie Brown. Anderson gives a shout out to the late editor Sally Menke, who worked with Quentin Tarantino on numerous films. As the conversation continues, Anderson shares why it made him cry. That is some seriously good shit yep. right there. I mean, that's a watermark in my mind for, I mean, it brings, makes me want to cry. It's so beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, on, on, and so many, from everybody, from Quentin and what he wrote to um, Sally Menke, his late great editor, the initial part of that scene when those cuts back and forth. 
she was she was uh, I mean one of the best and the initial cutting when it's the, the single shots back and forth yes. that shouldn't work somebody says something back and forth back and forth but she does it with grace every beat is taken care of it doesn't feel over cutty these little punctuations that he does that grabbing the coffee cup so beautiful and then when they sit down and you see these two people these two people of a certain age and they talk about it out front and out in the open to have a movie that's so cool and so breezy about middle-aged people who are you know, f feel the clock ticking, yep. you know, um, at least she does. And to have that dialogue, which is so beautifully written and so perfectly acted with such grace and delicacy and sweetness. And Robert Forster, I mean, That's talking about one of the greatest performances yeah, in the yeah. history of cinema. Yeah, I mean, I hope it's just, just gush and gush up here, yeah. but it... From from from, uh, I consider Quentin a peer, but as a as I you know I don't you know, but to look I say, that is a watermark for 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 how to shoot a scene and and take care of a scene with delicacy and grace and just compassion and that that slow zoom in he does on the side there as she's mm -hmm. talking about oh fucking I don't know where I'm at you know I don't yeah. know what's coming beautiful film beautifully done. Yeah, and also the way that he frames her profile, that's throughout the movie, right? Yeah, you know, he just, does a lot of that. Well, I mean, you know, I don't blame him. If I, you know, yeah, he had a profile like that to shoot, you yeah, like, really. Look, yeah. She's so beautiful. Um, and I and all that dialogue so so real, too. It's just like, yeah, you, you she does look exactly how she did look and I'm sure her ass is bigger and all that, but it's 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 you you feel you feel the connection of Quentin to, to the, the the writer to his material, but it's not overly written. It's it's the, those characters speaking and um, and and it's so simple. Mm -hmm. There's nothing going on there. It's an apartment and a fucking breakfast nook. Yep. You know what else do you again? What else do you need? Yep. Um, just lovely like that and the music's pitched just perfectly and just right and mixed just right lovely stuff it's the first 45 i ever bought Delphonics? <laughs> yeah. was it really yeah it was 11 years old um well, that's yeah. very good taste yeah well, for a young 11 year old <laughs> hey thank you <laughs> uh, um yeah great movie and quentin is someone else who sticks to film yeah, who's, who's, and who's actually about to shoot in seventy? As That's well. right. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah Quentin's Quentin's a, Quentin's a film nerd too, I suppose. We're all a small group of us, hopefully growing and sticking together. Quentin's much more vocal about it, though. I mean, he wants mm -hmm. to like you know, he wants to like tar and feather people who shoot yeah. digital, yeah. <laughs> like like turn it into wants to turn it into one of his movies. Like I'm gonna cut your fucking ear off yeah. if you shoot digital. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Which would and that would include the the director of our opening night film, David Fincher, who, for him, he could he could see film disappear tomorrow. And he's, right, right. You know, he's, and, he's uh, yeah, got a very articulate argument for the other side of it. And, and I stay out of it. Yeah. I'm, out of it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like fade into the background on that. <laughs> well, yeah, but you. No, I certainly have You're, thrown my hat into the ring for yeah. what I like, but I also just can't. I I also did, I find it difficult to to get on anybody if it's what their if yeah. it's their bag, you know. And I'm like, you know, it's your bag, you know. You're into it. Yeah. I don't want to tell you. I don't want to tell you what to do. I don't want you to tell me what to do. Mm -hmm. You know. I, I but I I think I think at at the moment things are going around. 
where genuinely there's such concern and fear in the air about yeah. film not even being an option yeah, that right. there, there, there really is a movement among filmmakers right now to, re to desperately encourage um, filmmakers that are coming up, filmmakers that are around and are, and are producing stuff right now to, if you have a choice, please shoot film, that there is no financial uh, incentive to shooting digitally if you're at yeah. a certain budget level it, that, you know, obviously it's very, e it's much, much easier for younger filmmakers to sort of pick up a camera and get yes. something done without a lot of costs and a lot of um, stuff. But so there's there is a there's a lot of dialogue going on right now among people making films, just really trying to encourage so that we we can keep it alive. And yeah. it, you would think it shouldn't be that hard, but it's diff it's been difficult. Well, that was a scary moment with Kodak. Uh, yeah, yeah, and it's a, it's a temporary reprieve, but the, right. the, the death notice is. I mean, it's, there's still a kind of like sign on your back saying, you know, this you, you're still going to get executed. You know, <laughs> you got to keep it. You got to really do. We've got more needs to be done. So. That's kind of, yeah, that's a real reality that's going on for some of us trying to keep that stuff. Yeah, and I think a lot of people don't realize how, uh, there, there are quite a few filmmakers who still do shoot on film. Wes Anderson still shoots on film. Marty Scorsese, for the most part, shoots on film. Yeah. Um, um, well, but what's good too is that J.J. Abrams is shooting Star Wars on film, yeah. so it, it requires, um, you know, some of these bigger bigger films. Chris Nolan obviously is sort yeah. of at the front lines of all this, yes. I, I have to say. Um, yeah. Who's made a beautiful film, if anybody can get out and see Interstellar when it comes out. I think uh, I think people will get out. They can. Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> I was just trying to put in a good word. You probably yeah, haven't no. heard about this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Support it's, this filmmaker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But don't fuck around. Go see it in IMAX too. Don't don't yeah. wait. Don't you know? Brave the line. Do it. Bite the bullet. Brave the line and go see it in IMAX. And, it's fucking amazing. And fight tooth and nail for that seat in the center of the theater. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, if you if you sit in the wrong seat in an IMAX theater, you can. Yeah, toss that can lunch. ruin your day. I yeah. think, and you need a chiropractor after it. But, um, <laughs> well, don't go the first couple weekends and just yeah. wait and go wait for the seat. wait after the first six months and then go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's the solution, yeah. obviously. Yeah. Um, the other thing about Jackie Brown is that also the feel of it in relation to the city, to L.A., and to, you know, is... Well, yeah, you know, the funny thing is, Quentin's down from the South Bay, which is like an, another planet to right. me, because that's not... I'm from another side of town. Right. And there's so much South Bay stuff in, 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 in Jackie Brown. Yeah. And technically an inherent vice, too, so, you know... Um, it rang around in my mind. How did Quentin do South Bay? You know, it's different air and stuff like that, but yeah. it would be hard not to ignore it. So skillfully done. The combination of characters, I did not read the book that it's based on, yeah, but being from Los Angeles, seeing the combination of characters, it's just one of those things like, this makes sense. That the Sam Jackson character, the way he looks, the way Bridget Fonda looks, the way Robert De Niro looks, like I've seen these fucking people milling around the South. I've seen I it doesn't it's not a movie, movie, mm -hmm. fake movie shit. It's yeah. like it really has Bridget Fonda. Bridget Fonda. What did I say? Did I say Bridget Fonda? Did you mention Bridget? I mentioned Bridget Fonda. Oh, I'm sorry. I got me paranoid now. Sorry. <laughs> sorry, man. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. Has anybody seen Jackie Brown recently? I hope I, mean, I hope so. <clears throat> Good. Yep. So, uh, next one? Yeah. Let's do that.
And this is Eugene. The next clip was a bit of a surprise. It was a music video directed by Emily Kai Bach for Canadian artist Grimes for her song Oblivion. The video was made on a shoestring budget and led into a conversation uh, between Paul Thomas Anderson and Kent Jones about music videos and the impression they had on him as a young kid. Sorry we didn't have the uncensored version. <laughs> that gets me going. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that. talk about that. What, what? Fucking great. Um, well, it's, it's uh, this girl, Emily Kai Bach, did it? Yeah. 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 Um, I just saw it, and it made me hyper, and it made me bounce around the room. Got mm -hmm. me... I just wanted to bounce off the walls. I thought, this is fucking great. Yeah. Not just a great song, because it is a great song, but when, when everything comes together perfectly, you have a great song. You've got this great performer, this great artist, matching up with this, these visuals, and everything clicked. Yeah. Um, yeah, the taking her into a real situation, mm -hmm. you know, taking this amazing performer into a real situation, and it's spooky too. It fucking gets you pumped up, makes you undance, but there's something spooky about it. It's so um, graceful the way she does that. There's a really good energy, but that kind of energy that starts to get a little bit crazy and a little fevered, and you see some of the faces that she got, these guys, these kind of frat guys bouncing around, and they seem all too real and all too date rapey and kind of scary and um and and there, so there's that like danger lurking underneath it but on top of it it, it just makes me kind of makes me want to dance i guess I don't know. but she's great she's done a lot of interesting work there's some sort of similar things going to sort of um beautiful ugly locations i suppose is one way to describe it she sort of finds Beautiful, ugly locations. Yeah, it's a good way to describe it. Sort of malls and things and ice skating rinks and locker rooms and things. And she's just doing really great work right now. And um, I've just kind of been digging it. So I thought it was good to throw in there amongst the mix. And, you know, always looking for somebody that's, that's doing something good. And she's out there doing it. So, yeah. Um, what else? I don't know. Well, when you were younger, did you get excited by videos? Because that was when it all started. For sure. When you were for a teenager. Sure. David yeah. Fincher, you know, yeah. I mean, he like he like Love wrote vocabulary for it, you know, yeah. for how they they should look and, um, and feel. Um, but yeah, for sure, music videos is a gigantic thing. Yeah. Um, I remember the first time I saw a music video. It was for Devo, and they played it in front of Animal House. Oh. In 1979, whatever wow. that was. For my, Whip It? Or? I don't remember. Yeah. Um, it, but it was spooky as hell. Yeah. I shouldn't have been in Westwood at 10 o'clock on a fucking Saturday night yep. seeing Animal House. Yeah. But I was with a crowded group of college kids, and Devo came on. And you were, like, what, like, nine years old? Or I was nine years old. Whoa. I was... <laughs> <laughs> But that was not my fault. That was my right. uncle's fault right. because he brought me there. Yeah. He should have known better. Yeah. Uh, my mother had said, don't take him to see Animal House. Right. And I said to him, will you take me to see Animal House? And he said, did you ask your mother? I said, it's fine. You should take me to see Animal House. 
And he believed you, so that's no. The he right knew there. that it was yeah. no good, and okay. I think as a way to maybe punish her a little bit and to take care of his nephew, he said, "I'll take you to see Animal House." And we were walking along, and the entire walk towards the movie theater, wait, 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 I think I just saw your mom. Hide over here, <laughs> fucking with me. <laughs> this paralyzed, you know, paranoid freeze, like, yeah. all right, now to get into the theater. For a late show, which yeah. is already that's already adding on top of it a mistake, and then <laughs> crowded with college kids at the UA Westwood Theater or the Coronet, I beg your pardon, and then Devo comes on this music video like this is not what I was expecting. I'd never right. seen a music video before. I'd certainly never seen Devo before with yeah. the hats and everything. Then when they were in those crazy suits that yeah, they sure. would wear, that they're in Human Highway, they wear those crazy yes. kind of um. The Neil, another Neil Young another movie. Neil Young movie. Yeah. So that was my first introduction to music videos. And I, needless to say, I was terrified, but I loved it. Yeah. You know, yeah. I loved it. <laughs> um, so yeah. So you were it. an MTV addict. For sure, yeah. not as much as other friends of mine. Mm -hmm. I mean, people that were really addicted. I would check in. We didn't have it. I had to go to a friend's house to see it. Okay. So I couldn't. My addiction was couldn't. It competition. You dad. Yeah. No, it wasn't competition. It was just I lived on the wrong side of Ventura Boulevard. It was like if you. It was a like horrible dividing line. It was like being in the ghetto. Like you can have cable if you live on this side of the street. You can't have it if you live on this side of the street. It was like yeah. looking over the fence at freedom. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like I live in this fascist state. We can't get cable, but like five feet across, you, you can. They've got MTV and the Z Channel. <laughs> like <laughs> so. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Some labyrinth of cable laws and, and, and who knows what else was going on at that time. Yeah, yeah. But I, when I would see music, music videos, it was a huge thing, too. And, and planted music and, and pictures together for me, as it did for, I think, a lot of people yeah. from my generation that are making films. It probably ended up making music a more important part of films that we make. Yeah. Um, there are also milestones in that, um, in that, in that area, like Mean Streets and... Um, pop fiction and and uh, you know we could probably go I would uh, music and movies yes I would yes. say something wild would be one mm -hmm. as well that I would include in there for sure yeah. um, oh god if we get on music and movies yeah, let's, that's let's, we could do that for a while yeah um, let's do it oh god what all right what comes to my mind come on <laughs> let me see here hmm. Hmm. well Wes is doing great with that too yep, he does it um, great but Jackie Brown, I mean, my God. Jackie know. Brown, of course. Quentin's mm -hmm. always been great. But Jonathan Demme, to me, has always been... Mm -hmm. He's he's had this sort of sweet spot touch for me, um, yeah. the way that he kind of mixes things up and has sort of different background cues. This sort of, is so the first time it's sort of like, well, I think I can I don't remember, you know, like something moving from a kind of like it's on a car radio to blossoming out yes. and becoming something that was really the soundtrack for the movie and minor things like that, not to, not to mention his musical tastes and selections and um, that were so eclectic, mm -hmm. but never felt, um, but never felt like you were watching just the best of somebody's record collection. Yeah. You know that that can be a bit nauseating yeah. and not and not exactly right. The wallpaper and, effect. Yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah. Here's my mixtape. You know, yeah. and here's my movie afterwards. It doesn't. There's always a reason for things that, that grew organically. My awesome mixtape. Awesome mixtape. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, but yeah, the, the list is long. Um, yeah. Raging Bull. It's got a good, 
well, that goes without saying, my God, Raging Bull. But Raging Bull's sort of mostly, mostly not a lot of tunes, is there? There's I mean, a lot yeah, of I tunes. guess there are in the background. Yeah. There, there are, aren't there? Yeah. When they're Big fighting outside Winneka. the nightclub. Yeah. 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 Um, a, well, anything with Scorsese in music was just gigantic. Yeah. Um, even after hours, too, the way yeah. he handled it there, too. Not just in that movie, not just the, the songs that he used. But that ticking clock Howard Shore score yes. was just like, what the fuck? I've never heard anything like that before. Yeah. And, you know, to that end, uh, that, that just reminded me of Carter Burwell's score for Raising Arizona. Oh, yeah. The first time you heard that yodeling, it was like, what is going on? You know, <laughs> this is amazing. You know, I remember yeah. seeing Raising Arizona and it took like 15 minutes before the title came on. And I didn't, I, I just, I, my head spun around like, is the movie over? Did it just start? <laughs> I, I had never seen anything like it, and mm. you know, I uh, haven't really since. But that was a huge thing seeing mm. Raising Arizona. With that great music. As long as we're, you, you're giving shout-outs to Carter Burwell and uh, Howard Shore, and uh, you know, you've been working with a great, great composer for the last three movies, Johnny Greenwood. Um, yeah. Um. He's particularly uh, inspiring to work with um, as, a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a musician, as a person. Um, hard to figure out exactly what to say other than it's a joy. Yeah. And um, he's, he's constantly on my mind in a good way as, as, as a kind of barometer of, of um, integrity and style. And he's, he's, he's got good instincts. And, I love working with him. Not quite sure what else to say. Well, those are just it, it scores unlike anybody else's. So you know, right, yeah. yeah. It was nice to get him to uh, in, in Heron Vice uh, have him. He plays a little bit of guitar, which is nice, sort of a first. Yeah. You know, he's sort of he's so reluctant to pick up his guitar sometimes, but it was nice. The movie called for it, and it was a great thing just hearing him him play around. And there's one piece particularly towards the end that 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 um, that he's had for a number of years with nowhere to go, and it found a really nice home. Um, in this film, um, just hearing him play guitar, and yeah, getting him with an orchestra is great. But I love him playing guitar too. So, so let's we're gonna go to that last clip. Okay. Yep. And this is Brian once again. The final clip of the program was from Frank Capra's 1933 romantic drama, *The Bitter Tea of General Yen*, which featured Barbara Stanwyck in a story about a Chinese warlord and an engaged Christian missionary who fall in love. Um, that's a contrast between <laughs> Oblivion and this clip. Um, you know, from the, that's the newest clip to the oldest clip. Yeah. Um, who can name that movie? There you go. Very good. Frank Capra. Frank Capra. Um, this movie is new to me. I just saw it for the first time a couple months ago. Somebody recommended it, and I went out and got it. And um, it's pre-code. So there's a kind of, there's a... It certainly is. Yeah, you can feel it right, yeah. Um, I mean, where to start? I would start first with, with the, um, Barbara Stanwyck. Yeah. Who, yeah, I mean. <laughs> I mean, that's the sexiest woman I've ever seen in my life. I mean, there's that, and then um, just stunning, stunning to look at, stunning actress, great. Um, and the DP, Joseph Walker. Joseph Walker, who shot it. Yeah. I don't know who did the sets. I don't know either. But again, oh boy. if there is a, 
if there is a you know re reason for film lighting to continue to be something that that that, it, that is an art form that we struggle for that we continue to do. Look at that movie. Look at those sets. I mean, you know, mm. why there should be unions. There's a long stretch of time when the studios were sort of like hiring non-union guys to make their sets, and you can always tell because somebody will lean up against a wall and the wall will start to move a bit <laughs> like this, you know. And <laughs> the, these sets were built by good guys who knew how to do it. And um, in, in the 30s, obviously, at the, at the height of their powers, making beautiful images and sets and 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 it was a, a the, the the very common thing at the time if you need a chinese uh a actor hire a white man yeah, you know from uh, sweden from sweden yeah. yeah which was very common and i and i have to say in some ways makes him even creepier miss this character mm -hmm. this kind of fascist evil dictator kind of character yeah. gets super creepy when he's sort of piled beneath layers of makeup yes. and um and, and, and I actually, it really works in a weird way. It makes him more, more theatrical, obviously, but it makes it more of like this Frankenstein character that mm. and she's having this dream here about this kind of horrible Nazi-like dictator who's super charming and it sort mm. of moves her emotions from, I do not like this guy to, am I in love with him? Do I want to fuck him? I'm confused. Yep. And this is like, this is, this yep. is a common problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Shared by many of you, I'm sure, in the theater. Yeah. And it's a film that was a, a colossal disaster. Is that right? Yeah. I didn't, I didn't yeah. know that. Well, he, never, he certainly didn't make another one like it. That's for sure. Well, he certainly made more uh, clear, films that were clearer with their point of view um, yes. than, than, than this. <laughs> this is not a Frank Capra like any other Frank Capra. We're sort of accused of being very sentimental. Yes. And I think that's pretty accurate. But this, this is not sentimental. No. This is like dark and really great. Yeah. Um, it's new to me, so I thought I would share it because that, that was exciting to find something new. Um, and that's always exciting, too, is it? And that's what's great, you know. It's like books on a shelf. Like, you can love movies, you keep watching, but there's always something else that you haven't seen, yeah. you know. So. Yeah. There is, there is no such thing as old movies. That's what Bogdanovich said. There's only movies I've seen and movies I haven't, I haven't seen. Yeah, that's good. I yeah. like that one. Yeah, that works, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, Thanks for coming out. Thanks for Thanks having for me. Thanks for doing Ken. it. That was great. <laughs> The Close-Up is produced by the Film Society of Lincoln Center, a member-supported nonprofit arts organization. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society works to recognize established and emerging filmmakers, support important new work, and enhance awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do, visit filmlink.com, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.com. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.